All of it is supported by Missouri, makers of handcrafted jewelry that's made to last. Looking for the perfect Mother's Day present? Missouri has you covered. Get free shipping on all orders in the U.S. and Canada, plus a two-year warranty. Head to Missouri.com slash all of it or use code all of it for 10% off your first order. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash all of it. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Welcome back to All of It on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. Today's show is dedicated to musicians who have published memoirs. Our next guest debut album made it onto Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. It was called Exile in Guyville. At the time, 20-something Liz Fair was simply being brutally honest and open about her desires and her sexuality through her songwriting. Her candor and put-it-out-there style excited young women and sometimes perplexed old-school rock critics. Just take a listen to the album's first hit single, Never Said. Liz Fair's memoir, Horror Stories, is no different. Through a series of raw personal essays, she reflects on those moments we've all had, the ones that haunt us. Just not all of us are good enough writers and storytellers to fashion those moments into a whole book. She's also working on new music in preparation for an album that will hopefully drop next year. And she's about to go on tour with Alanis Morissette. It's an anniversary tour to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Alanis' seminal record, Jagged Little Pill. I talked to Liz Fair when her book was first published. Take a listen. Horror stories. <laughs> why that? Why that title? Why that subject? <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of tongue in cheek because in the book I deal with a lot of sort of personal and intimate moments, you know, that have haunted me over the years. But there's such a big industry in the entertainment world behind like horror this and horror that that I guess I guess I'm sort of tongue in cheek referencing that, but but putting my own spin on it. So when you think about your own personal horror stories, I'm just curious, you know, I have ones that replay over and over and over in my Mm -hmm. brain. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you write those down? Are they the kind that just kind of stay with you? Part of your daily, not your daily, but sort of your life story? Your daily torture. (laughs) Daily torture, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) your self-flagellation, yeah. (laughs) No, I didn't write them down. They truly are the stories that stuck around. I mean, it probably is dismaying to think about, but we all have these moments that never really land. You know, maybe it was something tangential, like there's a chapter in my book where I witness a parent beat a child, and I was very far away at the time, so I couldn't intervene, and it just, it, never settled for any of us that witnessed this. Why did you decide to write these down in a book as opposed to make a concept album, Horror Stories, the album? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it was the time that I started writing. It was right around the 2016 election and also when David Bowie passed away and Mm -hmm. Prince passed away. The conversation changed and it felt like everyone was sort of getting rid of superfluous, superficial stuff and thinking about what was essential to them, what was essential in a human's character, what was essential to give to each other in terms of truthfulness and how we can sort of 
bat for the team that believes in interpersonal accountability. Why did you decide to write this book? And it doesn't go chronologically. We, we bounce around from different times in your life to different, different you know, versions of, they're all you, but different versions of you at different times. Why did you choose that style? Um, I think I'm used to making albums, so I think of them as, in, as discrete like stories in and of themselves, and I'm used to working with songs on an album that come from different times when I wrote them. And I think also I tried to write, I wanted people to take the themes away rather than a chronological, like, here's how I got where I was going. I wanted to talk about being human, you know? You write in your prologue, it's hard to tell the truth about ourselves, but our flaws and our failures make us relatable, not unlovable. That's something it takes a lot of people a long time to figure out. When did you realize that, that you could be flawed, but you could still be loved and appreciated? I think I still struggle with feeling lovable in certain ways. I think I'm aware of all of my flaws and I beat myself up pretty heavily for the things that I should know better that I still do. And I do believe though that I have learned something most people don't just by exposing myself and sharing my truth in my material, that my art, that it actually heals you. It heals you to know the stuff that you have may be bad, but there's lots of other people with bad stuff too that they're quietly hiding. And we don't need to be ashamed of being human. We're all human. In fact, that's uniting. What is What was different for you about writing these chapters, these short stories, as opposed to writing it in a song form? These chapters, I feel like the way I'm writing, I did try to write in the style, in the mindset and almost the language of the age that I was when this happened to me. So when I write in Redbird Hollow about being six or five or however old I was, climbing a tree and getting stuck in a spider's nest with my brother, like that, that is written in, in the kind of the tongue, the voice of a very young person. Mm-hmm. And for me, songwriting has always been inhabiting a character to some extent. And I think writing gives me that character of me so much more fulsomeness. It's so much more spherically complete. It's actually who I am as a person, mm-hmm. not this skill that I do. My guest is Liz Fair. The name of her new memoir is Horror Stories. This is a, you just put it right out there in the book. When you were a little girl, you said you knew you were going to be an artist when you were a little girl. How did you know that? I loved to draw. I loved to arrange things. I just, I, the way I understood my world was I made art about it. And my mother, I think, saw, this is a favorite story of hers. She saw a drawing. And she was, she was a docent at the Art Institute of Chicago. So she, was, she oh. loved art. I'm sure she encouraged me. But she also found I had an aptitude. And even at a young age, I was, I was just drawn to make art. And I always have been. And it, it, it kind of it translates really well into the writing because it's sort of the artist is the observer. Mm-hmm. It's, you, went to, you actually studied art at Oberlin. Correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong on any of these factoids. Okay. <laughs> um, but when I, you know, when I, when I first hear Oberlin, I think music. I think like you know, Rhiannon Geddes went there, and Josh Ritter, who was here a couple weeks Karen ago. O. Uh, yeah, Karen O. Uh, Lena Dunham. Yeah. Just throwing all the names. Keep out. going. <laughs> Mark Cohn. Mark Cohn. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, were you really going there to be an artist, like a, a, a visual artist? A visual artist. Yes. 
When and it, yet I already wrote songs at that point. <laughs> I mean, the thing about Oberlin that really did kick off my music career was the fact that at every off-campus party, there would be at least three, if not four, original campus bands playing. And they weren't very good. Some of them were good. <laughs> some of them were terrible. And, but I never, you know, they'd be talking to you one minute, then like, oh, my set's up. And they'd go up on stage and play. And I didn't realize, like, all colleges didn't have four or five original campus bands playing at every event. So I was less afraid and less intimidated to get up on stage myself once I moved to Chicago because I'd seen it. I'd seen people fluidly um, perform who maybe shouldn't have been there. <laughs> you know, like if just... you had something to say, you could get up and say it. So when you think about um, yourself at that age, those sort of like 19, 20, 21, and you're just getting started and you're just starting to write. Um, what do you what do you recognize about that woman that's still around today? The stories, the observer, like the way that I write now in horror stories is just all, all that person who finds everything fascinating and finds everything impactful emotionally. Mm. Kind of like, I feel like a live wire on the inside a lot of the time. And on the outside, maybe I don't show that. But then the writing really is where I say all the things I'm not allowed to say in real life, do all the things that maybe I never really did or wanted to do or, you know, it's it's my playground of the imagination. One of the things that I, hearing you say that makes me want to jump ahead to this, the one store, one, some of the stories were about New York, but the one where you get lost in the snowstorm here and you really are able to express your fear and your sense of like, I really messed this up. I did this to myself. Yes. I put myself in physical danger. Um, tell people a little bit of the backstory on this one, this horror story called New York City Blizzard. <laughs> it's a great, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. It, it's sort of a bookend to another incident in New York where I was there for the blackout. Um, but this time I'm older, I'm more mature, and whereas like when the blackout happened, I just wanted to go play in the city with everyone else, this time I was driven to make my next gig. It was all about being professional, being the boss, getting to the next show, getting paid, all these kind of things. So I stubbornly and really shockingly stupidly decided I was going to get back to my hotel room when the city was shut down. You couldn't even drive over the bridges. Subway was the only way to get there. And I just got off the subway in a whiteout condition with no street signs, no cars, no people, doors all locked, everyone in bed. And I got lost. And I ran out of cell phone battery. <laughs> I'm going to read a little. Do you mind if I read it? No, or do you want to read it? No, please. Okay, you write here. Please, please, please. I beg God, my fingers shaking as I type repeated keywords into Google. Triangle Hotel, New York. Wedge Hotel. You can't remember where it is. Cake Slice Building. <laughs> Triangle Building, New York. Finally, I hit upon the magic phrase. The screen fills up with a picture of the Flatiron Building on a bright, sunny day. My memory comes flooding back. Lecture slides from my college art history class. Greg asking me this December if I'd like to try out a new hotel in the famous downtown building. The doorman holding, holding open the door in my cab earlier today as I left for Williamsburg. Google Maps shows a location a quarter mile from where I'm standing. I follow GPS, my heart racing. I'm so close, but I am terrified the battery is going to die. Come on, I beg my phone to live, willing it to keep me company on this bleak and frightening trek. I'm Tom Hanks and Castaway talking to my volleyball. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've memorized the way to my hotel now, but I feel 
feel an irrational attachment to this glowing screen, my only lifeline. My shock at my own recklessness has me rattled. I slog through the heavy snow, my legs aching, my pants damp, and crusted with ice from the thigh down. What series of catastrophic mistakes brought me to this point in my life? How did I stray so far off the beaten path? It's hard to say. <laughs> it is just such a funny description. And because up until then, I'm a little worried about, I mean, I know you lived, but I'm a little worried about you. Were you, were you really frightened? I was truly, actually physically frightened. You know that difference when you're just sort of like emotionally frightened versus actually physical fear? I truly understood at a certain moment that I was in physical danger. And if the snow, I didn't know how much harder it was going to start snowing or how colder it was going to get. Like it was, it was really frightening. And I cannot, I cannot overstate how locked up and shut down New York was. There was not a soul on this island, which turns into the really cool part of the book when I sort of embrace that mm -hmm. and I end up in this kind of Narnia-like wilderness. I rely on my imagination once I don't want to spoil anything, but... How much of the fear was that now, as an adult, you have people who depend on you? Honestly, probably not enough of a fear. I really? should have been much more worried. I tended to think simply, I don't know if I thought I was going to, did I think I was going to actually die? I think I might have gotten frost. I could see bad outcomes. Right. I couldn't see any good outcomes. How about that? Yeah. It, was, it was really dark. The name of the book is Horror Stories. It is by Liz Fair. There is a part in the book, which I laughed out loud, when you suddenly have a lot of fame and a lot of attention, weird things start happening to you, right? And you have this great chapter when you talk about a photo session. And you look up at yourself in the mirror and you say, I look like a deranged zombie <laughs> prostitute. <laughs> You were young, you know, you had your thing you wanted to do, you were being creative, but you had this whole business decide to put you up on a pedestal and decide that you are the, the it person of the moment. Um, did you understand what was going on at the time? Not really. I mean, I was so, it took, I, I had a delay in comprehension hmm. versus what I was actually doing. So I just felt constantly underprepared. Every, you know, because there's once you do become famous, they'd like you to do different things. You have to speak, you have to do interviews, you have to, there's like a lot of different duties that come with that. And I had no idea what it was. I had never been, when I put out my first record, I'd never even been on stage ever. Wow. Never I performed. So people came to those shows waiting for this amazing person that just sprung out this new album. And then they saw me like knees knocking and <laughs> tiny little feeble voice. And it was like, it was just such a, I think that's why so many stories resonate with me to this day. They were so powerfully impactful at the time. Like, who mm -hmm. am I? What am I to these people? And what do they expect of me? But it was interesting, on the flip side of that, there were all these young women who completely were excited about the way you were talking about sex and your body. And uh, there's one um, great quote about Guyville. A reporter from Rolling Stone said, it's hard to overstate what Guyville meant at the time. A double album debut was audacious. Her clear-eyed and candid representation of sexuality and gendered experience of the music scene even more so. Did you, were you thinking, I am, I am a young feminist and here's my young <laughs> feminist record? Or was it just who you were? 
honestly, I kind of was thinking like a young feminist because mm-hmm. of Oberlin. Oberlin really sure. drilled that in. Like there was definitely that sense of uh, activism and awareness and questioning authority that was sort of baked into the Oberlin curricula, I would say. There was a sense of always asking the hard questions. And there was also a sense of just embracing the body and embracing difference and embracing humanity above Mm -hmm. all things. I think that's one of the things I took with me. The book also has some really interesting personal stories. And one idea in particular I wanted to ask you about was that you and your brother Phil are adopted and how adoption, being adopted, really had an impact on the way you viewed motherhood and pregnancy because the way you came into the world wasn't talked about in those terms. At at what point during your pregnancy did you realize this? Or maybe before your pregnancy, like when when did you realize like, oh, this is, this is really different. This is something that you know, you don't hear the story. I never heard the story of my life. Yeah, and it, this this part, like I, I I say in the book, you know, talking about like when it comes to labor and what's about to happen, my mother never went through labor. So there wasn't that sense of like, oh, here's what it's going to be like and this is what you can expect. <laughs> you know, so I was filled with dread. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, what is this going to be like? And indeed, I got the full swing. I got the full helping of labor's you know, I got every bit of labor you can get. <laughs> you know, like, it lasted 32 hours, so it was a really long thing. That is long. And then this little miracle shows up on the other end of it. And I think the the kind of funny thing about that chapter is like, how is this all worth it? I keep asking. You know, like my stomach's bulging. I can't move. I'm not comfortable. I don't get it. And then the instant transformation when you hold your child in your hands and. That's no different than when my mother received me in her arms, even Mm -hmm. at a week or two weeks old. Like they tell a story about running a stop sign because they or a stoplight because they just couldn't take their eyes off me. I think when you feel that this life belongs to you and you're responsible for it, all of that washes away. I mean, Mm. thank God it does, right? (laughs) (laughs) How old is that little one now? He's 22. <laughs> he's almost 23. That's amazing. He's awesome. He's he's my best friend. He's really, he's a wonderful person. I know you've talked about it a lot, so I'll just ask one question. You do put in your book a chapter called Hashtag, and Hashtag is about, um, people know that Ryan Adams, the writer and the producer, got involved, had a part of a Me Too situation, and you were working with him. Um, had anything, had you experienced anything like Me Too before we all started talking about it? Not overtly, but I, as as everyone's talking about Lilith Fair again, you know, that's mm-hmm. in the news again, that was the closest I ever felt to a remedy for what I was experiencing in the music business or sort of painting a portrait of what it could be like versus what it actually was because it wasn't just about all these women coming together in a festival. It was also about the fact that programmers, radio programmers, wouldn't play female songs back to back. They wouldn't even play more than two in an hour because they thought there was no audience. for. That's it. true, that's 100% yeah. true. Consultants used to say that all the time. Yeah, and so like there was, there was an actual framework to keep women separated and competitive with each other. So when Lilith Fair happened and 
hats off because Sarah McLaughlin like really spearheaded this mm-hmm. and got everybody to do it. And it was all about helping each other and being with each other. And at that time, contextually, I don't even think the public could know what a healing experience that was for us. Like that that set the table for the rest of my career hmm. so the in I- terms of what I wanted to do with myself and my so the idea if, if there had been sort of the way these structures are starting to form up again now of mm-hmm. women taking care of women and mm-hmm. allies, not exactly. just women, taking care of women, that perhaps some of these Me Too stories might not have happened or these people would have had somewhere to go. The culture needs to change. It needs to just stop. And there's a lot of people who I understand feel very nervous and feel like it's unfair to go back and you know say that that was the norm at the time. How can you... You know, I've changed since then, et cetera, et cetera. But whatever casualties are happening in the culture from the Me Too thing, mm-hmm. the victims suffered more. So frankly, it just needs to change. Women need to be safe to work. We need to be paid the same. And we need to take care of each other. My guest has been Liz Fair. The name of her new book is Horror Stories. It's nice to see you. Thank you so much. What an excellent interview to be a part of. Thank you. This is all of it. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening to all of it. Join us every weekday at noon on WNYC. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at all of it WNYC. And if you missed a segment or two this week, you can check out our podcast and catch up. Available on your podcast platform of choice. All of it is produced by Megan Ryan, Catherine Millsop, Ursula Summer, Simon Close, Jordan Lauf, and Nina Bisbano. Matt Miranda is our engineer, and Luscious Jackson does our theme music, with original compositions by Jeremy Bloom. I'm Allison Stewart. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll meet you back here next time. All of it is supported by Majuri, makers of handcrafted, ethically sourced jewelry for every day that's made to last. Looking for the perfect Mother's Day present? Majuri has taken the guesswork out of gifting, offering everything from dainty 14K solid gold pieces to pearls, diamonds, gemstones, and more. Make it personal with an engraving, or if you can't decide, check out their curated gift guide. Let them take care of the rest, gift wrapping included. Get free shipping on all orders in the U.S. and Canada, plus easy returns and a two-year warranty. Head to Missouri.com slash all of it or use code all of it for 10% off your first order. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash all of it.